following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> as we get into the worship of the Word this morning, we're going to be continuing into the series in the Luke's, uh, Gospel of Luke. And to give you a little bit of previous to what's coming down the pike here, um, next Sunday I will also preach on Luke. And then that following Sunday on September 6th, our brother Paul will be preaching out of the book of Revelation. And then um, starting, uh, actually let me show you the slide here. Uh, this is the scripture reading, but then starting September 13th, um, we're going to break from Luke for a little bit and for about six to eight weeks cover uh, what's typically called the order of salvation. Um, and it's kind of come uh, to my awareness through some one-on-one counseling with some church members and even those outside the church that there really exists still... Um, for Christians who've been in the church for many years, a lot of confusion about some of the most basic elements of salvation. Um, and so I want to unpack that a little bit and by exploring it together to hopefully lay a really solid foundation of how we understand these massive doctrines of Christianity like election and um, sanctification and justification and regeneration and these, these huge words. And I have taught this material in some other contexts, but I'm intending to sort of revamp the entire material for this series that we're going to do, and so I'm really looking forward to that in the uh, coming fall here, okay? Um, one other thing is I, the text this morning comes from Luke 17, verses 11 to um, 19, and I was debating about whether I wanted to preach this or just skip over it. Um, because I had actually preached this text uh, two Thanksgivings ago. And so I was like, well, I already talked about it. But as I was reflecting on this passage, I really felt like God was giving me some different convictions that I really didn't go into in the previous message. So um, although I preached on this text uh, just a couple years ago, uh, we're going to kind of be looking at it from a little bit of a different angle this morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Luke 17. We're going to look at verses 11 to 19, and it reads, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Lord, as we do each week, help us. Help us to 
understand your word, and not only to comprehend it, but to believe it and then live by it, not by our own strength, but by the strength that comes from your spirit alone. And so open up to our eyes what that singular leper understood that day as he returned to Jesus to worship at his feet and give him praise. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our story this morning begins in the borderlands between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, this is sort of a map, a, a, a simplified map of Israel. This is Galilee, this is Samaria. And so it would be right around this region. Jesus conducted most of his ministry up here north in Galilee, his hometown area. And as you know, starting from Luke 9, verse 51 to the rest of the gospel, it's telling the story of Jesus' slow but inevitable journey to Jerusalem where he will die on a cross. He knows that he's going there to lay down his life. And so pretty much everything recorded after Luke 9.51 is a record of that, low, that long, slow journey to Jerusalem. And so where we find Jesus on this journey is right between Galilee and Samaria. And in these borderlands... He enters into a village where he is met by a group of ten lepers who are standing at a long distance and shouting at him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Leprosy was arguably the most feared disease in ancient times because of the grotesque disfigurement that it caused its victims. Every time I preach on leprosy, I always Google search some images of it and put it into my slides, and then thinking better, I always pull them out. Because um, they're really hard to look at. And I know sometimes we have children in the congregation and things like that. So if you want to Google it on your own and you can see what leprosy looks like. It's a horrible disease. It's a horrible disease. By law, lepers were not allowed to get any closer than 150 feet from the general population. And so they gravitated toward their own outcast communities living amongst one another. Unable to earn any income, they were all forced, in essence, to become beggars, surviving on the grace of others to survive. They were ceremonially unclean, and so they couldn't worship at the temple. Everything that they touched would become unclean. And so they were never permitted into the homes of other people. They were, in fact, by law required to keep their hair messy and their clothes torn so that they would be easily identifiable by the public. Whenever they approached, they were required to shout, unclean, unclean, so that the people could scatter and run away from them. In Jewish custom, to look at somebody's face was incredibly important in the relationship. It symbolized a deep, intimacy with that person. You couldn't get close with the person without looking into their face. That's why throughout the Old Testament, we see this command to look to the face of God. It's this idea that when I see God's face, I know him. I commune with him. Lepers never experienced that intimacy because by law, they were required to cover their faces because of the grotesqueness of their faces. And so they were denied that basic intimacy with other people to have someone 
Look at your face. It's hard to imagine a more miserable existence than that of a leper in ancient times. Jesus responds to them in a rather unusual, even confusing way because he tells them to present themselves to the priest. And this is what lepers were supposed to do after the healing, after. In fact, if you read Leviticus 14, there is this whole list of commands for them if they feel that they've actually been healed of their leprosy as to how to be reincorporated into Israelite society and there would be sacrifices that would have to be made and they would have to live in an isolation tent for about eight days so they could be observed to make sure that the cure was real. And after they went through this process, then the priest could proclaim them clean and they can once again re-enter society as a normal human being. But there is no account here of an actual healing taking place. Jesus, it says, never. there's never a declaration where Jesus says, be healed. And so by asking them to present themselves to the priest, it was clearly a step of faith that he was asking of them, believing that they would be healed before they reached the temple grounds. And so by faith, all 10 of them head to the temple to present themselves as clean to the priest. And imagine the shock and the joy as they begin that journey to Jerusalem and suddenly they look at their skin and they're feeling their face and they're whole once again. Now, before we look at the one leper who returned to thank Jesus, which is the obvious focus of this passage, I want to ask you a question. Why did Jesus perform these healing miracles? And to add to that, why does Jesus still heal even today? Now, it may sound like a stupid question, but I don't think that the answer is as obvious as we think it is. I think probably one of the most obvious answers to this question is, well, that's silly. Jesus healed to alleviate suffering, right? He sees people in pain and he has compassion on them. So he heals them, and so it's really out of his desire to cast away disease that he heals. In other words, miraculous healing is basically like Jesus' version of Obamacare, right? Universal health care coverage for the believer. Um, But if, if Jesus' goal was to improve the standard of living for the faithful, then I would make an argument that he failed. In fact, he failed pretty miserably because think of all of the prayers for healing that go unanswered. The people that remain in hospitals sick and die of their cancer or die of those other diseases that abound in humanity. His scorecard is not very good if that is his primary goal in healing. In fact, it almost seems like these type of miraculous healings are by God's own design rare. They're not so common as we would like. So then if the ultimate goal of these healing miracles is not for the purpose of relieving suffering, or at least primarily for the purpose of alleviating suffering or improving quality of life, then what is the purpose of these miracles? Well, I would argue that the miracles Jesus performed are signs that validate his claim to be the Son of God so that we might put our trust in him and be saved. 
In other words, the whole point of a miracle is that we would look beyond the miraculous act itself and see the God who performed it and be drawn to him in relationship. And this is the truth that only one leper understood that day. As it says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This is also the truth that the other nine lepers couldn't understand about the whole point of miracles because none of the other nine bothered to return back to Jesus. In other words, once they got what they wanted, they left Jesus in the rearview mirror and rushed to get back to the life that they had left behind when they first contracted leprosy. Now, it's easy to judge these nine who never returned to Jesus. But I think the truth is, and this is, I think, a common fallacy, is when Christians read the Bible, they often identify more with the noble characters in the story, right? And we tend to judge the lesser people that end up failing. But if we're really honest, I think the truth is often we are much more like the ones who failed than the ones who actually rose to do the right thing in most circumstances. I want to just paint for you a scenario. Imagine if Bill Gates, the billionaire founder of Microsoft, decided to retire in the Chicago area because who wants to live in Seattle, right? Or, and, uh, and became a Christian and by some crazy set of circumstances started attending ICC. And not only that, but he joined your community group. Now, imagine how hard it would be to have an open, honest relationship with your fellow church member, Bill Gates. Um, his incredible wealth would always pose an obstacle to that relationship, wouldn't it? Every time someone shared a prayer request about a need they have, Everyone would glance at Bill, wouldn't you? You're kind of like looking to see how he's reacting. And if you didn't find an anonymous envelope stuffed with cash in your mailbox the next morning, you'd be pretty upset, wouldn't you? Come on, Bill. What's your problem, dude? I mean, why are you being so selfish? You could sneeze out that money and not even miss it. Or your community group decides to splurge one year and go on a group vacation to Florida. You're going to fly out there, do the whole Orlando thing. Wouldn't you be a bit angry if Bill Gates didn't offer to cover the entire tab for the group? Dude, that's messed up, man. Bill, how can you even call yourself a Christian and you're not even offering to pay for my vacation? You see, this is the challenge that Jesus faced in his ministry all the time. The endless parade of people who wanted to get near him just so they could get something out of him. And the truth is, our churches even today are filled with Christians who treat Jesus the same way. As someone who is there to do our bidding, our will. In other words, 
I think the Christian life, as many of us wrongly define it, is that I define happiness however I want, and then I ask God to provide that happiness for my life. But the whole point of these miracles, that, like the one that happened that day, is not even about receiving the gift itself, per se. But the whole thing was that that gift, that answered prayer, that miracle was supposed to point to God himself and open up an understanding in our hearts that, that God is the one I really need in my life, not even all of these gifts. It's the giver that I need to seek. John Piper writes this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For what these replace, for when these replace an appetite for God Himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. And I want to ask every one of you who are here this morning that singular question Have you progressed in your relationship with God beyond seeing Him as like a divine Santa Claus who is there to be a giver of gifts? As, point, as Piper points out, we are notoriously bad at diagnosing our deepest needs in life, aren't we? We miss that mark all the time, settling for trivial, momentary pleasures rather than God himself. But it's clear from Jesus' response to these ten lepers that what he wanted out of that miracle was a relationship with these men. Or women, we're not even sure the gender of these lepers. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, the heart of Jesus is that what I wanted was the relationship. What I wanted was you to come back and worship me, and commune with me, and be with me. But you've got your gift, and now you're on your way. You got what you wanted. That last phrase, your faith has made you well, in the literal translation of that word, it's literally, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. In other words, ten lepers were physically healed that day. But only one of them returned to worship God and found salvation. Because only one of them wanted a relationship with God. The others only wanted the gifts. You know, I think this. I want to expand on this idea a little bit and say, I think many of us go through life with this fundamental strategy of pursuing happiness through pain avoidance. Okay? I mean... Let's just be honest here. I think for many of us, that's sort of the goal of life, 
It's to maximize happiness by avoiding discomfort and pain. And then we falsely assume that God has that same agenda for our lives as well. That's why, in fact, I think the truth is so much of our prayers revolve around pain avoidance. God, help me out of this mess. Lord, stop this pain. Jesus, rescue me from this trouble. Now, listen, I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong to pray prayers like that. I think God does invite us to pray those kind of prayers. And I'm not trying to cast God as some kind of sadist who gets some enjoyment out of our suffering. But this is something that I would say is when we truly understand that our greatest need is God himself, then we can understand why he doesn't always bail us out of our troubles, but allows us at times to go through difficulties. Because the point is, whether he rescues us with divine intervention or whether he allows us to go through that valley of the shadow of death, his objective is still the same in both cases, which is to draw us to himself. Whether it is through suffering or whether it's through rescue, God is saying, come to me, depend on me, look to me. And God can accomplish that goal both ways. That's what Peter said to the early church in Asia Minor when he said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see, these early Christians were confused by suffering because when they became saved, they automatically but wrongly assumed that that would be an end to their difficulties because the logic is pretty sound, right? If God is on my team, then why shouldn't it be smooth sailing from this point forward, right? It'd be like if Michael Jordan played on your high school basketball team, you better believe you're going to win the state championship. And if you don't, you'd be pretty upset at MJ, wouldn't you? It's this basic idea that if I become a Christian, God is on my side, and it's going to be awesome from now on. No more problems. But that's not the life that these early Christians encountered. In fact, on top of the regular difficulties of life that all of us experience, they've suffered even more because of persecution, because of the faith. And Peter tells these suffering believers, don't think of this as something strange, as though what's happening in my life? Because you see, in God's eyes, the biggest win is not to avoid as much pain as possible in this life, but that our faith might grow. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see what Peter is saying? God is not going to bail you out of every trouble. He is not going to deliver you from every moment of pain because even pain has a place in his plan. Because what he says is, this faith is what is greater worth than gold. And in order for God to accomplish that growing of your faith, sometimes he has to allow you to endure that pain and go through suffering. 
This is the way that God relates to us. When I rescue you, come to me and know that I am a God of power at work in your life. But also through those times of difficulty, know that I am testing you and refining you like gold to make you more like my son, Jesus Christ. Only this singular Samaritan leper understood the purpose of the miracle that he received when he returned to Jesus, fell at his feet, and began to worship. And the particular expression of this worship is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I think it becomes one of the most important expressions of faith is giving thanks to God. Because when we give thanks to God, what we are acknowledging is you are the source of everything that I have. I don't come with this attitude of entitlement as good as, as if good is owed to me. We talked about that in the last message, right? God is our debtor. You owe me this, God, because of what I've done for you. No, instead we say, whatever good that I have received in my life is out of the grace of God that he has given it to me. The goal here is not simply to train ourselves to give thanks, but to cultivate a heart that is truly thankful. I talked about this in the last message, right, of the interference that is created by the way we sort of teach thankfulness from even early childhood. And listen, let's be honest, even us as parents, we're all guilty of it, isn't, aren't we? You know, it's just this idea like, what do you say? Thank you. You know, it's even little kids learn how to do this, right? It's, if I want to get that thing I want, I know the price of admission is I have to humble myself and say, thank you. And, you know, often kids don't want to do it, right? So you say, listen, we can stay here all day. You're not getting the popsicle until you say thank you. Well, I don't want to say thank you. Well, then you're not going to get the popsicle, right? So eventually the kid wants the popsicle so badly, says, thank you, right? What a great way to teach Thanksgiving to children, isn't it? You see, we teach them thankfulness or thanksgiving as an act of politeness, as common courtesy. But the truth is, we don't actually nurture a heart of thankfulness in our children, do we? We just tell them, this is what you have to do to get what you want. But I think what we're talking about when we look scripturally is, how do we actually nurture a heart of thanksgiving so that when I come to worship and sing these songs about thanksgiving, my heart is genuinely drawn to be thankful to God. I think the only way that we do this is when we continue to meditate on the fact that God is the source of every good thing that I have received in this life. You see, if you're not meditating on those truths, the truth is you come here to a Sunday worship and you can mouth the words, but there's not a lick of thankfulness in your heart, is there? Because the truth is, I think our normal operating mindset is that pretty much everything we got in life was based on our own efforts, what we engineered for ourselves. It's only the heart of faith that can really acknowledge God's hand in the things that we have received. I'm going to close with this story here about this lady named Dori Samadzai Bonner. 
She tells the story of her family's flight out of Afghanistan in the early 90s, in the chaos of civil war. Her father was a high-ranking officer in the Afghan military. And right away, he knew that he would be one of the top targets once the new regime took over. And so, desperate, he did the only thing he could think of to save himself and his family. He had papers forged to get him to be able to flee to the United States. Once in America, his plan was to try to seek political asylum. And so through these forged documents, they managed to get to the U.S. And for five years, they lived in America in the Los Angeles area, waiting for their case to be heard by immigration. They climbed a few rungs in social status, going from the high society of Afghanistan to his father becoming a security guard in the L.A. area. But it didn't matter because they were in America. And they embraced American culture with gusto, you know, fast food, rock music, everything. They just grew to love it. And so after a while, those, the trauma of Afghanistan was forgotten, and they actually began to feel like Americans. Five years later, they finally had a summons from immigration to appear in court. And so they excitedly gathered all their legal documents and showed up on their court date. Then they walked into the waiting room, and their excitement was suddenly turned to dread when they saw a sea filled with people that looked like refugees, many of them upset and crying. And as they were waiting hours to see the judge, uh, Dory's father, began. his face just became white as a ghost, and it almost looked like he was having a heart attack right there. And so they were able to get a three-month delay in their court hearing uh, before they would finally be heard by the judge. And Dory says that in those next three months, she watched as her father's life became unraveled. He became a wreck. He became paranoid. Um, Any slight noise in the house made him jump. He would go to bed every night with his clothes neatly folded and stacked right by his pillow in case he had to suddenly flee. And then finally, three months after that postponement was over, um, they got their new court date. And they stood before this elderly white male that looked really gruff and stern and looked like in no mood to be doing what he was doing. And... The judge just says uh, to Dory's father, did you enter the U.S. on forged papers? As a teenage girl at that time, Dory began to translate for her father because his English still wasn't very good. As As her father launched into this long explanation for how it is that they ended up coming to America with fake documents. But the judge was impatient and cut her father off and said, I don't really care about your explanation. I just want a yes or no answer. Are you in this country illegally? And to which the father had no choice and simply said, "Uh, yeah, 
I'm here on forged papers. The judge angrily said back to Dory's father, "Uh, we here in the United States, we don't give citizenship to those who break the law. We can't and we won't. At that moment, not knowing what else to do, Dory's father suddenly stood up surprising his family and he began to undo his belt. And Dory was like, I don't know what he was going to do. I think he lost his mind. But he started undoing his belt buckle and then he started to take off his shirt and pull down his pants. And he began to systematically show the judge all the knife wounds and bullet holes, the scars marking all over his body of those moments when he was tortured in Afghanistan. And then he took off his shoes before the judge where the torturers pulled off his toenails. And then he said to the judge, It's easy for you to judge me. You sit in that seat and you wear that robe. But if you came on this side and looked at me, one man to another, you would see that everything I did, I did to save my children. I had no other choice. You might deny it right now, but I know you would have done the same thing. If you have to show the American public that you didn't take it easy on us, I understand. Send me back. I volunteer. But please let my children stay. Please give my children a new home. And then as her father sat in his seat, and she says he began to wail like a little baby, crying before the judge. She had never seen her father cry like that ever in her life. The judge called a recess. And in an hour later, when he returned, he stamped the father's papers with the word asylum. And then he invited Dory's father to stamp all of his family's papers with the same stamp. And the judge put his arm around her father's shoulders and told him, welcome to America. Eighteen years later, after first entering the U.S., on January 29, 2009, Dory was finally sworn in as an American citizen. And she closes her story with these words. It is through my children, my two-year-old son, and my unborn child in my womb that I will make sure that this gratitude that overflows in my heart every single day will continue to live on long after I'm gone. You know, when I first heard the story, I was blown away because it made me think about how I, my attitude toward my own U.S. citizenship because we immigrated from Korea our, ourselves. And I thought, you know, to me, America means eating great food at cheap prices. It means watching a movie on reclining seats. It means getting a top-rated education at one of the best universities in the world. But I realized after hearing that story, that for other people in this country, living in America means being rescued from a life of torture and death. And you know, I think that there's a lot of parallels to that and how we treat our salvation, isn't there? I think even in the church, it's so easy to have this flippant, what have you done for me lately, God, attitude. 
And we forget, don't we? We forget what God has rescued us from. We forget the price that was paid to enable us to be citizens of God's kingdom. And so we come to worship week after week without a lick of thankfulness in our heart. Instead, it's just a grumbling, complaining spirit because of what God didn't do for us lately. And I think we need to see what this leper saw, that it's all about grace. It's all about God's goodness and the price that he paid to secure it for us. Psalm 103, 1 through 5 says this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray. I think it's possible to live for many years growing up in church, um, hearing the gospel, and really never moving beyond the most basic attitude of entitlement, and basically seeing the goal of life as pain avoidance. That's how you define happiness, pain avoidance. And for many of us, we don't know how to relate to God in any other way than to basically see the gifts that he can give us. But as we see in the story of the healing of these ten lepers, these things that God does on our behalf, the gifts are actually secondary. But what God's goal in anything, whether it is to allow us to suffer and go through difficulty or whether it is to deliver us in our moment of need. In both cases, God has the same goal in mind, which is to draw us to himself, the giver of life. We want so much in this world. We want so much out of our life. But what God is saying is, I am the one that you actually really need. I am the greatest gift. It's just that most of the time you can't recognize it. And so you chase after these trivial pursuits that are all temporary and fading. You reject the one who can give you the lasting joy, the lasting hope. So as we come before the Lord in prayer this morning, I just want to invite you in this idea of giving thanks and worshiping at the feet of Jesus. You know, how do you view your citizenship in heaven? Maybe you just are so numb to the cliches, the slogans that none of it really seems to resonate with much impact anymore. Maybe what you could pray for this morning is for the Spirit of God to give you a fresh understanding of the good news of the gospel. Like Dory and her family, if you send us back to Afghanistan, it's a death sentence. We will be picked up and executed. To live in America is life. You see the desperation with which some people are in this country. 
And you think about the cavalier attitude so many of us, us have living in this country. Always complaining about the long commute or the latest iPhone not working the way we want it to. And sometimes in that complaining and grumbling spirit, I think we lose sight of the real story, the story of redemption, the story of salvation, the story of a God who had it all and yet gave it all up to rescue sinners like us. As the psalmist calls out to the people of Israel, forget not all his benefits, but remember what God has done for us. And let's pray for that work of God in our lives to stir in us a reminder of all that we've been rescued from, to know that our God is good, and to be able to thank Him, not out of courtesy or out of force of habit, but out of a heart that is leaping with the joy of understanding what He has done for us. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response? Let's pray.